This is Banished and I'm Amna Khalid. Last week, Harvard announced that it will extend its test-optional admissions policy for at least another four years. The stated reason? The pandemic has reduced access to test sites. But this decision has most definitely added grist to the test elimination mill. Last year, the University of California declared that SAT and ACT scores will no longer figure in admissions decisions. The movement to do away with standardized testing is predicated on the idea that tests are culturally and racially biased and that they do not reflect the true abilities of students. Some refer to them as proxy for privilege. Joining us today to discuss the issue is Jeff Snyder, Associate Professor of Educational Studies at Carleton College. Jeff, it's such a pleasure to have you here with us. Thank you for the invitation. Let me begin by asking you, we hear a lot about how these tests are biased. Well, what exactly is test bias? Can you explain that to us? So people look at differences in scores and they assume that there must be bias. So wealthier kids score higher on standardized tests than low-income kids. Uh, white and Asian kids score higher on standardized tests than Black and Hispanic kids. And people look at those numbers and they say, well, there must be some sort of prejudice, discrimination, or bias in play here. So the idea is that just because there's a difference, they're reading that as indicative of an inherent bias in the test itself. Yes, exactly. They're looking at the difference and making the inference that because we see these average score differences, there must, in fact, be biased. So I think an analogy could help us to better understand um, how to think about score differences, uh, average score differences when it comes to testing. Let's say you've got a village, and I'm going to foreshadow the crux of this example here by saying it's the year 2000, small village in Afghanistan. You go into that village, you give all 10-year-olds a math test. When you do the results, you look at the findings, you see that the boys on average uh, did pretty well. Uh, but that the girls uh, overall bomb the test. So, so what's the explanation there? Well, to my mind, it's pretty simple. If we're talking about Afghanistan, it means that those girls don't have access to education. That's right. The fundamental nature of the score discrepancy here is perfectly uh, obvious. It's that boys have had access to educational opportunities and resources, and girls haven't. So uh, we, we can't simply see differences in scores and assume bias. We have to think more carefully and more critically about the source of those score differences. Where are they coming from? Are there plausible alternative explanations to allegations of test bias? If I'm getting this right, what you're trying to say is that these tests don't create these inequities in the results, but are actually reflecting them? Is that an appropriate deduction? That's exactly right. And let me just put an even finer point on the definition of test bias. When you think about test bias, what you want to ask yourself is, is this test systematically disadvantaging certain populations by underestimating the real skills and knowledge in the domain that's being tested? Let me give an example that I think is helpful here. If you look at ELL students, right, English language learners, uh, and you give them a math test, studies have shown that these math tests systematically underestimate the real math skills and knowledge uh, of English language learners. And why is that? 
It's because every test in some way is a test of the English language. If there are word problems, mm. right, these ELL students will struggle. They'll devote some of their cognitive energy to decoding the text, understanding unfamiliar vocabulary, and they won't be able to demonstrate the actual computational skills that they have. Mm. So I think that this is a real example of how we should think about test bias. Uh, with that population, with math, with science, there's often this dynamic where we don't get a true read on their genuine skills and knowledge because it's being filtered through their English language uh, capabilities and abilities. So in that case, when you're talking about ELL learners, I feel like there is a bias built into the test. Students who are proficient at English will not be spending that cognitive energy on decoding what it actually means and will get straight to the problem, whereas those for whom it might be a foreign language, they're not going to do as well. Yeah, that's exactly right. And so I think it's interesting here to think through how people conceive of bias. The ELL example gives us a different spin or a different take on what constitutes bias. Because if you think about the allegations of, say, racial and cultural bias, a lot of it comes down to an allegation that tests are really tapping into a particular cultural capital. Mm. Uh, and the way it's phrased by most critics of testing, it's kind of white upper middle class cultural capital that is being assessed by standardized tests. Which, quick note, by the way, um, doesn't really explain why uh, people of Asian descent outscore all other ethno-racial groups on standardized testing. But setting that aside for the moment, there's this sense that the SAT is constantly asking students to parse the meaning of esoteric words like regatta. Mm -hmm. Right. So if you're not a wasp <laughs> uh, from New England, you're not going to know what regatta means. Um, and that's a famous example. It's a real example. It's over 25 years old. Hmm. And so when you actually ask people, show me examples of that kind of cultural capital bias that's encoded or embedded in test questions, they come up empty. It's not to say that they don't exist. But they're outliers. A professor at Harvard Law School named Lanny Guineer wrote a whole book that criticized standardized testing called The Tyranny of Meritocracy. Mm -hmm. And she claimed that racial bias and cultural bias are rife in the SAT in particular. The book is almost 200 pages long, but there's not a single example, not a single specific example of that racial or cultural bias. I think it makes even less sense when you think about math. If you think about some of the key topics on the ACT, slope angles, exponents. I would like somebody who makes the allegation that tests are culturally biased to explain to me how mathematical topics like that encode cultural bias. Where is the cultural bias in an angle? Well, Jeff, we are living in times when two plus two can purportedly be five. So <laughs> there are people, <laughs> I'm point. sure, who'll make that argument. <laughs> but leaving that aside, I, I see what you're saying. But let me push back a little, right? Um, mm -hmm. What about test prep? I feel like mm -hmm. there is an argument to be made that people who can afford test prep are the ones who are going to do better on these tests. And who are the people who can afford test prep? Well, those are the wealthy people. So if that is indeed the case, then it is biased, isn't it? This is one of the most resilient myths about standardized testing, that test prep is highly effective and that test prep is decisive. 
So there are a number of test critics. I'm thinking, for example, of Alfie Cohn. And they'll say something like, you know what the SAT measures? It measures your parents' zip code. It measures the size of your parents' garage, Mm -hmm. right? It's simply a proxy measure of socioeconomic status. On the question of test prep, it is often expensive. Mm -hmm. You do have more affluent kids who do test prep classes in higher rates than, than poorer kids. But then the question is, does test prep actually work? And the answer is no. And if you want to be a little more precise than that, you could say not really. Not in a way that would systematically advantage more affluent students. So across a number of different studies, right, they've seen that test prep can boost SAT scores by a total of 20 or 30 points. Right. Is that an increase? Yes. It's within the margin of error from when you take the SAT. Uh, so it's not particularly significant. And in few cases, would it be decisive? So the idea that, that test prep is kind of a, a magic wand, uh, or let me mix my metaphors, a golden <laughs> ticket. Right. If you can afford test prep, you will have access to these top, elite, highly selective institutions. That's simply not true. And one of the things I've always found entertaining about the charge that test prep is the decisive factor in who gets in versus who doesn't Mm -hmm. is that it's a case in which test critics who tend to be socially progressive, tend to be on the left, are some of the fiercest critics of standardized testing. But they have wholeheartedly bought into the idea promulgated by test prep companies that test prep is wildly effective. Oh, dear. We've fallen for the marketing. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly, on the far left, who are in agreement with the Princeton Review and Kaplan and and other test prep companies that uh, sign up for our test prep course and you will see dramatic results. So so test prep critics and the test prep industry both agree that prep is extremely effective and makes all the difference in terms of getting into your preferred school. Wow, this is fascinating. So if the research on test prep is showing that prep itself doesn't do much by way of bumping up your chances of getting into an elite institution, then is there research on what happens when we go test optional? Because this is not a new idea. A number of institutions have been doing it for a while, albeit they're all small institutions until very recently. So can you say a little about what happens when we go test optional? I think the move to go test optional is comprised of a number of different motivations, some earnest, some cynical. The earnest motivation, when schools initially started going test optional you know, 10 or 20 years ago, I do believe that there was an earnest attempt on the part of some institutions to say, hey, you know what? Standardized testing may be a barrier to poor students. It may be a barrier to first-gen students, to students of color. Let's remove that barrier and try and really genuinely increase the economic and racial diversity on college campuses. Mm-hmm. We've had you know a good decade or two of research now, and what it shows is that hasn't turned out to be true. Test optional policies do not significantly or meaningfully increase racial and economic diversity on college campuses. The biggest study to date found that test optional policies had no effect on economic or racial diversity on campuses. A recent study by a guy called Christopher Bennett at Vanderbilt found that looking at 100 institutions, test optional policies increased the percentage of Pell Grant recipients, right? So low-income students Mm -hmm. 
and underrepresented minorities, quote unquote, namely black and Hispanic students, by 1% respectively. Hmm. So was there a boost? Yes, but relatively small, not the um, panacea, not the, the silver bullet that we're looking for in terms of really ramping up social and economic diversity. But just to quickly return to the range of different motivations Mm-hmm. that would inform schools in terms of going test optional, right? There was this hope, and as I said, it's a hope, and it's turned out to be largely uh, misplaced, unfounded, that you would have these diversity benefits. What schools found out when they went test optional, who's not going to submit their scores? If a school says, we're going test optional, you can submit your scores if you want to. Mm-hmm. Who's going to submit their scores? Well, those who did well on the test. Those who did well on the test, exactly. Students who didn't do well on the test, they're not going to submit their scores, mm-hmm. right? And so at the end of the year, you tally up the average incoming ACT or SAT scores for an incoming class. And what happened was the schools that went test optional have higher averages. <laughs> and then in turn, what happens, you feed that into the US News and World Report best colleges ranking algorithm. And it kicks up the ranking of these schools that went test optional. Oh. So in many cases, you can see schools, you know, who are purportedly going test optional to boost their racial and economic diversity of their of their campus. But a very real motivation is, hey, if we do this, it's going to help us game our numbers, juice the numbers for the U.S. news rankings. And... Um, you know, increase our status and prestige in the in the higher ed pecking order. Wow. So there are real ulterior motives at play over here, which are not about equity at all, it seems. Absolutely. Let's move on to talking about the alternatives that many of the test critics see as being more fair. You know, what are those alternatives and are they genuinely more fair than these tests? Okay, but before we do that, can I just complete one one thought that I had earlier? I just want to touch on the allegation on the part of test critics that income and wealth artificially boost test scores mm-hmm. and that income and wealth are these sort of magical ingredients that you need to uh, do well on standardized tests, because I think this is absolutely essential. Mm-hmm. If you take any other outcome, social outcome that we're concerned about and correlate it with income, uh, let's just take uh, health, everything from longevity to instances of hypertension, you're going to find that there's a strong correlation between income and that outcome, Mm -hmm. right? So wealthier people are going to live longer. Wealthier people are not going to suffer from hypertension as much. And that's relatively self-evident. Better access to healthcare, more resources, living in uh, cleaner, safer neighborhoods. But for some reason, the same logic doesn't apply when we think about the outcome of educational achievement or average test scores, right? It shouldn't be mysterious to us that more affluent kids do better on tests. Why? Because they have more educational opportunities more educational opportunities and access to higher quality public schools, public schools where the teachers have more experience, where they have more credentials, 
They have more access to all sorts of extracurricular opportunities, both at school and outside of school. They have the opportunity to travel. They have the opportunity to do enrichment. All of these advantages of money translate into, unfortunately, genuine differences in the academic achievement of different kinds of students. So when you look at high-scoring students on the SAT and compare them to low-scoring students, on average, they really are better prepared to succeed in college. And that's just a stubborn fact because they've received better educational opportunities. Okay, so just to be clear, because mm-hmm. I feel like you can come across as saying something contradictory. You were mm-hmm. saying that test prep doesn't increase your ability to do well on a test by much. But at the same time, you're saying that people who come from wealthier backgrounds tend to do better. There, I believe you're referring to preparation, which is years-long preparation in school, better opportunities that they have, and not test prep to perform on the SAT in particular. Precisely right. I mean, think about it. Think about test prep at its most intensive is going to be a matter of months right? Months of test prep are dwarfed by years, years of better academic preparation from pre-K through the end of high school. So I I think that's the way to to think about it. Those are real advantages that accumulate over time. Advanced placement courses, all of the high quality educational opportunities that one has if one is relatively well off. It's a complete red herring to imagine that test prep which unfolds in a matter of weeks and months, is doing all of the work here Mm -hmm. in terms of explaining these big differences you see between different populations, especially along the lines of class. Okay, so now if I can bring you back to the question that I was asking about Mm -hmm. the alternatives that critics of tests are proposing to -hmm. be more fair, and they see them as more holistic. Mm -hmm. Can you reflect a little bit on what these alternative metrics are, and are they genuinely doing what critics of tests claim they are doing? Well, this is the fantasy of people who imagine that doing away with standardized tests will automatically increase educational opportunity. Because, okay, let's say at selective schools, if you aren't going to look at standardized test scores, what are the metrics that you're going to focus on? Students submit things like a personal statement, letters of recommendation, list of extracurriculars. These are key components of any uh, admissions file at a selective school. Every aspect of the application that I just mentioned is far more susceptible to corrupting influences of wealth than any given standardized test score. Hmm. So if you think about letters of recommendation... Let's imagine you go to a private school, there's 100 kids in your graduating class, there are three guidance counselors, they meet with you starting your sophomore year of high school, by the time you get to your senior year and applying to schools, they know you pretty well, they write a beautifully detailed, rich, three-page letter of recommendation for you when you apply to Princeton. Now compare that to a kid in a public school in California. And this stat is just incredible. So uh, last I checked, in the state of California, for every 1,000 public high school students, 
there's one guidance counselor. Wow. Right. So imagine that student who's trying to compete <laughs> with his uh, you know, peer at, at a private school. That guidance counselor will probably learn that student's name a couple days before applications are due, right? Before the Princeton app is due. And it will be boilerplate. It will be rote. It will be short. So in that case, the advantages associated with wealth are really kind of spectacular. And a recent study just came out, actually, that showed that there's a stronger correlation between income and personal statements, right? The quality of personal statements that are written yeah. than there is between income and the SAT. And by the way, personal statements is kind of a misnomer, right? Because it assumes that it's just one person who's who's writing uh, an admissions essay. I feel like they should uh, be called you... personnel statements these days. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, personnel <laughs> statements. And the number of personnel involved only increases when you have more money. Yeah. These things are written by committee. They're highly curated. But just briefly to touch on the issue of extracurriculars, this is where you truly see the fantastic advantages that are afforded by higher income people. Mm. If, if you come from a working class family and you start to fill out your extracurriculars, what have you got on there? Uh, maybe you've got a part-time job. Maybe you've got something like took care of a younger sibling or an older relative, especially in this era of COVID. If you're wealthier, you have the freedom and opportunity to do all sorts of extracurriculars, whether that's debate, varsity athletics, travel, so if I'm an admissions counselor and I'm looking at a list of extracurriculars, the student who doesn't have much to say is going to pale in comparison to the student who says, you know, last summer I spent the first half on a homestay in rural France and then the second half of the summer uh, swimming with the turtles in the Galapagos Islands <laughs> to rescue the endangered turtles of the Galapagos. Um, if these tests are really not creating these inequities... Yet the rhetoric that many of these elite institutions are using in going test optional is that they're doing this in the service of social justice. There's a disconnect. And it seems to me that there are other areas in which they could make moves which would have far more of an impact than making tests optional. So, for instance, you know, we have the issue of legacies. We have the issues of special accommodations made for athletes. If you really, truly, genuinely want to do something about equity, then you would stop those kinds of admissions and just create a level playing field for everyone. Yeah. Level playing field is an apt phrase, and especially apropos, given that we're talking about the advantages that athletes can receive. So there was a recent study of Harvard admissions, which is pretty incredible in some ways, because you know, what happens behind closed doors in admissions offices at elite schools, it's a closely guarded secret, right? It's like the secret sauce. They don't want you to know what happens in there. But because of a lawsuit against Harvard, all sorts of behind the scenes information about their admissions protocols came to light. And what they found is if you apply to Harvard as a typical average applicant, your chances of getting in are 6%. If you apply to Harvard as a legacy, your chances of getting in are 35%. Wow. If you apply as an athlete, as a recruited athlete, your chances of getting in are 87%. Virtually guaranteed admission. So you see these staggering inequities with respect to these two student populations, legacies and athletes. 
at the most elite schools. So yes, if you really wanted to substantively change the demographics at elite schools, legacies and athletic preferences would be two of the areas that you would go to most immediately. And if you do that, if you do that, studies have shown that you actually change the composition of the student body in the ways that a lot of equity-minded folks would want, right? You have more economic diversity and you especially have more racial diversity because white kids are overrepresented among legacies and are overrepresented among athletes, especially the kind of country club sports mm. that are uh, privileged at places like Harvard, right? Squash, rowing, tennis. These are sports that require a great deal of investment Right, you want to talk about cultural capital and bias embedded in college admissions? The standardized tests pale in comparison to squash and fencing. How many kids grow up even knowing what those sports are, let alone having the opportunity to play them? But all these Ivy League schools and a lot of other schools have a fencing team. They have a squash team. And those spots need to be filled. Coming back to standardized testing. So am I hearing that you're a big proponent of these tests and you think that they're actually pretty useful? So um, I'm actually not a big fan of standardized testing in terms of college admissions. Let me be clear here. I'm not defending the use of standardized tests in college admissions. I'm critiquing the fantastical notion that if you do away with testing or go test optional, that that will fundamentally alter the composition of student demographics at campuses across the country, that going test optional will be a blow for social justice. I just think that's an outrageously misguided uh, myth, even a fantasy. In terms of the value of standardized tests, the SAT and the ACT, yes, they are predictive of college performance. They have what the psychometricians called predictive validity. Mm -hmm. I think there are important reasons to be really skeptical about the overall utility of standardized testing in the American higher education landscape. So before we noted that test prep isn't necessarily terribly effective. Perhaps it makes some differences along the margins, but they're very fine. That said, even if test prep isn't very effective, it gobbles up an incredible amount of time and money for high school students. It ramps up the anxiety of students and parents. There are very good reasons to consider dropping standardized tests, but uh, they are not about boosting equity. And I do think there's an argument to be made that testing does not promote the kind of deep analytical skills that we want to cultivate in college. So when I think about all the students who are taking AP tests, you have a kind of a tail wags the dog curriculum. Students are taking up to a dozen AP classes in high school. The entire curriculum is geared towards teaching toward the test. It's a very flat, narrow approach to a curriculum. And it ends up, I think, degrading the quality of education that some of our you know, brightest and most ambitious students receive in high school. So are there reasons to do away with standardized testing? Absolutely. Uh, but... Um, Not in the name of diversity and equity. Yes, precisely. Wow. Well, 
Jeff, this has been fantastic. And thank you so much for coming on today. So the next time our listeners hear and want to laud an Ivy League institution dropping standardized testing, perhaps there's reason to pause and think about what the real motivations behind that move are. Thanks again. Thank you very much for having me. Really appreciate the opportunity. If you like what you heard today, help us spread the word. Please rate and share this episode. Your support makes our work at Booksmart Studios possible. So please consider becoming a paying subscriber. You'll get transcripts, full interviews, and bonus segments. And the good news is that we have a holiday special of 30% off. So if you haven't already, visit booksmartstudios.org and become a subscriber. Vanished is produced by Matthew Schwartz and Mike Volo, and I am Amna Khalid.